Hello, you're listening to Drawn to the Flame, a podcast for fans of Arkham Horror, the card game. We're sometimes fortnightly, we're sometimes monthly. I'm your host, Frank, and today I'm joined by... It's me, Peter. Hello, Frank. Hi, Peter. How are you? Uh, I'm good. I'm very good. Enjoying the the sun, finally. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, after long cold days. Yeah, the, the long, long winter um, just feels really nice to have got out the other side of it and have uh, some evenings back, which is nice. How about you? Very nice. Yeah, I'm all right, thanks. I'm a bit under the weather today, but the podcast waits for no man, no matter how uh, sickly or healthy they are. So I thought we'd dive in and do an episode anyway. Yeah, I thought that was a, a, a Norman reference there. Time waits for Norman. <laughs> Get it out of your system now. <laughs> yeah, we're not talking about Norman today, though. No, we're not. Screw that guy. No, I've I played Arkham with two separate groups this week in my kind of farewell Arkham to friends in London because I'm moving, and in both groups there was a Norman, and in both groups Norman was awesome. Unsurprisingly, I'm a huge fan of Norman. I just think having that revealed top card, you can just get up to so many shenanigans, can't you? Yeah, absolutely. Tricks and things like that. Anyway, what are we talking about today? Well, good question, Frank. What are we talking about today? This was this was one you kind of pitched. I don't know why you passed it on to me to, to explain it. Okay, <laughs> fine. Well, so hang on. Let, let's to... go on. I can say where it come, came from if you want. Or yeah, well, uh, yeah. Please, I tell you what, Frank. <laughs> what are we talking about today? So I was listening to another podcast about Arkham. There's another podcast about Arkham. Yeah, I know. Maybe made by our our rivals, the other side of the blood feud, Mythos Busters. Curse their name forever. Um, they've been reviewing all of the Edge of the Earth cards and got to Cyclopean Hammer, or Cyclopean Hammer, depending on how you pronounce it. And part of their review was talking about whether or not the card was too good. Or another angle on that would be overpowered. And we can come back to that in a moment. And as I was listening to that discussion, I thought that is a really good discussion. But what what do they mean by too good? And I realised that we did almost exactly the same thing in our colour pie episode. Ooh. We, I went back and listened. We talked about Time Worn Brand and whether Time Worn Brand was too good as a neutral weapon for 5 XP and a similar thing happened and it prompted the same questions for me so I really wanted to explore I guess what does it mean for a card to be too good in yeah. Arkham, not in general that that might be a bigger topic than we can handle, but in Arkham in particular when someone says, oh that card is too good, what what are they really saying about the game and what, what yeah, are they saying what about is that the card? What are they saying about the card exactly? So yeah, so that's that's what I wanted to explore. Partly, I think, in terms of timing, we ha- we were starting to work under the assumption that there'd be a new taboo list once each cycle was out. But I think that's slightly gone out of the window because of how disrupted things have been because of the pandemic, because of the global shipping delays, because of the change of distribution model all of that has changed things but i wonder if we're due a taboo list sometime soon and questions of the power level of particular cards is something that's normally provoked by taboo lists as well or 
To put it another way, a card being too good might be a reason for it to be included in the taboo list, maybe. Or some people would say, well, this card should be tabooed. It's too good. So I guess that's in the air for me as well. So Peter, where does where do you go to when someone might say a card is too good? Or what are the cards that what what comes to mind with that kind of concept for you in Arkham? To me, if someone says a card is too good, that's a pejorative. Mm-hmm. I don't know whether you agree with that. It's it's not usually said in a positive way about the card. Yeah, rubbing your hands together in glee. Oh, this is too good. <laughs> this, no, this I don't card, think I've heard that either. Yeah, it, it's it's somehow it's somehow countered to what people want to enjoy about the game. Mm-hmm. That would be my first impression, and I think that that probably comes in several forms. Mm-hmm. Um, do you want me to go into those? I can just start diving in if you want. Yeah, I I agree. By the way, that it's a, a pejorative for it. It means that there's something broadly speaking negative has happened, and yeah, th- the ways or what has happened that's gone wrong is part of what I'm interested in here. Yeah. So please dive in. Interestingly, the phrase "good enough" also doesn't. It's not really <laughs> positive either, is it? What, what saying this card's good enough? Yeah, <laughs> if I was to say to you, your efforts were good enough, you'd think. I, mean, I wasn't thanks, particularly. Peter. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's the problem, just British politeness. <laughs> the only, the only acceptable positive description is good, too good, or good enough. Doesn't cut it, <laughs> or or not bad. Yeah, not, oh, not 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 bad. Not bad. Not bad is really good, uh, and really yeah. good is usually uh, pretty bad. Pretty bad. Yeah. That's a separate linguistic minefield that we've just strolled let's not, into. Let's not walk in too far into that minefield. It'd be a hasty retreat and get back to a yeah. comfortable card game territory. So what sort of thing might have gone wrong for this hypothetical player to declare a card to be too good? Well, there's there's two main things that, that spring to mind. First of mm-hmm. all is something being too good so that it crowds out the other options. In mm-hmm. fact, there's probably three. Uh, it crowds out other options in that slot or in, in, in that particular area. So mm-hmm. it immediately becomes an obvious pick over anything else and kind of attacks diversity in yeah. your in your well, your deck building or your approach. Mm-hmm. Do, do we want to go through my, my kind of headlines now and then we can dive into each one? Yeah, or? and then we'll go. I'll start. My temptation is to throw in examples as you're going. I'm going to hold off doing that and you give us the list first, I think. Bro. I think another is that it, overshadows what other people in your game might be doing. Mm. Mm-hmm. It's probably tied to that first kind of feeling of too good. If I'm a character that is able to do everything comfortably, say I'm a generalist who's able to perform at the level of a specialist in multiple areas, that means the other people I'm playing with are like, well, why did I bother coming along? <laughs> why did I bother specialising my deck? The distinction is the first is intra-player, it's your deck or your investigator, and the second is inter-player, it's whatever your deck or your card that's too good is doing is actually impacting the other people at the table, yeah. in theory, yeah? Yeah, 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 okay, I'll, I'll, I'll take that, I'll like that, thank you, cool. And number three? Uh, there's an element of trivialising the challenge, so I don't want to make what I'm doing not have any conflict or tension for me. Mm-hmm. If I if I 
play a video game. And we might actually come back to the topic of video games because we, well, rather I've talked to you about this a lot recently. <laughs> yeah. If if you were going to play, I don't know, Doom, let's pick a game everyone everyone knows, I'm sure, and you put the God mode on, would it be any fun to play through it knowing that your character can be harmed? Mm-hmm. Especially when the, you know, I'm not saying a game has to have some element of harm for it to be enjoyable, but the the mechanics of Doom are based around things trying to kill you and you killing them before they can do that. Yes. Yeah. So it's your ability to use the weapons and your resources and avoid harm. That's what all the mechanics are around. So if you put a god mode cheat on, and I'm positive there is a god mode cheat in Doom, you immediately trivialise a lot of the mechanics there. Yeah. Uh, you could just punch things to death. The challenge with talking about this topic is that, like I said at the start and like you just alluded to, there are so many different elements that a player might derive enjoyment from. Mm-hmm. And the pejorative, ah, oh, that card was too good. We don't necessarily know which thing they were hoping to enjoy they felt that they haven't been able to enjoy. And this is part of why I think it's a really fascinating topic to look at because essentially there's an assumption or a set of assumptions behind the person saying that was too good. They're saying, I was hoping to get the following thing out of the experience of playing Arkham. Maybe a feeling of jeopardy, maybe that little bit of adrenaline when you draw a big monster off the deck and you're like, oh my goodness, can I deal with this? And if the card in question is the Cytopean Hammer and you're like, ha enemy, for some players that is less enjoyable than the feeling of rolling the dice, the jeopardy, as I said. Will I be able to deal with this? Wow, this is really making me sweat. Mm-hmm. For, for instance, actually recently playing, I was playing Daniela in The Heart of Madness Part 1. and we in the first three turns drew all three shoggoths. Do you remember the shoggoths in Heart of Madness? Uh, yes. They're all like six. There's two six health and one ten health. They're just huge beasts. And I ended up getting really mauled by them, basically holding them off the rest of my team. I didn't have a particularly good solution for them quickly. Because one of the things you can do as Daniela is sort of use her ability to to compensate for the fact that you're not a pure guardian. Anyway, I use this example because I found that really enjoyable, if incredibly scary, and I definitely wasn't too good. I was really struggling with dealing with these big beasts. And we even ended up throwing some dynamite to where I was standing um, just to try and whittle them down a bit more because I was fighting all of these big, big enemies. So. Part of what I was getting out of playing Daniela was definitely not feeling like I dominated the scenario or that things didn't pose me any threat. In fact, I got a lot of enjoyment out of calculating, well, hang on, if I take this hit this round, I'm taking two damage and three horror, so I can put two of the horror on a keepsake. I can, you know, will I survive or not? That became a really important part of that experience for me. Yeah, which I offer just as an illustration of that some of the enjoyment of playing a difficult or challenging game like Arkham might be about the difficulty, right? Yeah, yeah. But I guess the the, the thing that interests me, and this is, I think I sort of skirted around this topic when I talked to you the other night about this, this Frank. Mm-hmm. There's, there's an element of context on becoming uh, like a very powerful character. 
if if I could jump back to a, say a genre of video games, uh, mm-hmm. we're both familiar with roguelike games, yeah, uh, including famous roguelike Rogue. <laughs> it's a in, in those it's games so roguelike. It's isn't incredibly it? roguelike. Rogue. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> those games there's there's usually an element of you make the best of what you're given in terms of options. Mm. Hades, a game I've played a lot of recently, right? can be quite difficult. But every so often, you assemble a a set of upgrades and items which turns your character into an almost unbeatable behemoth, right? Mm-hmm. Not, you, you know, the look of the draw or your, your kind of decision-making ends up with a character that's incredibly powerful and is able to just walk through boss encounters or walk through the challenges. Mm-hmm. And that all happened to greater or lesser extents, depending on the game. Hades is a yeah. great example because, you know, it's got a fixed end. You know, a run is probably only an hour long at the very tops. Yeah, You can assemble and you, you get a good amount of freedom in how you build a character during that period. There's a little bit of luck involved, but, but you can sort of steer in a particular direction. And mm-hmm. I've had runs playing Hades where I've got to the end of the game and it's just totally trivialized the final battle. Mm. But yeah. it doesn't feel pointless then because it feels like that that amount of being overpowered is well earned. Mm. It mm. puts that into context. If my character was like that from the beginning, it, there'd be no satisfaction in it. But seeing mm. that as a payoff for the work I've put in to make my character get to that point, that feels satisfying. If when you were in that journey of powering up your character, one of the options you were offered, you knew would always lead to this super overpowered place, but the other options would be harder or more of a risk. That's where the idea of too good and that idea of crowding out design space or choice kicks in, right? If one, If option one is your primary weapon does, you know, 16 times more damage and all the other options improve your dash or your secondary weapon or whatever it is, but not to the same degree. Where the pejorative, it's too good, kicks in is if you felt like actually making any other choice, you were actively choosing a worse thing. Do you get what I mean? Yeah, I'm with you. I'm with you. Yeah, yeah. Sorry to leap in and say that. Just, yeah, you'd mentioned overpowered. Like the journey to being overpowered could be a really fulfilling one. Is I guess what you're saying. That's right. Yes, if you feel like it's it's you made the meaningful decisions to get to that point. Mm. Yes, I, yeah. Because the flip side of this is if you feel like you can only beat the game through sheer luck, do yeah. you want to just keep beating your head against the game in the hope that you get a random seed that gives you enough chance to do it? That doesn't sound particularly satisfying to me. <laughs> yeah, so I've I've been playing Enter the Gungeon, which is a rogue light, sort of um bullet hell shootery little roguelike style game. And I I stumbled upon a gun that powered itself up. <laughs> it evolved. And the final form of this gun was incredible. Yeah. And it took me a while for it to evolve. I'd never played with it before, but the first time I beat the game is because I found that gun. Yeah. And there was no, the only skill involved for me was that I didn't throw that gun away. I thought, <laughs> oh, I'll try it out and see how good it is. And I played with it and it started evolving. And when I recognized how powerful it was, I actually stopped using it to save its ammo and used other guns I had 
was doing quite well in the run. I thought, well, when I get to the boss, I'll definitely use this gun because I think it's the best gun I have and see how I get on. And I, I won the run. It's much more on the end of randomness that it's the only time I've seen that gun in however many runs I've attempted. So, you know, if my only win condition is, or my only route to victory is I need to find this random gun, uh, you know, I have to find enjoyment elsewhere then. Otherwise, every other run is going to pale in comparison. Okay, so that's the context I think is really important when we're talking about if a card is too good. There's questions of how hard was it to earn? Uh, How hard is it to get it in place, in play? What does that look like? So maybe I give an Arkham example then, the one I I shared with you yesterday about Bob. Yeah, yeah, please. So when we got to the end of Edge of the Earth, we, our Bob player in our three-player group was running Big Money Bob with Joey the Rat 3 with, so, you know, uh, fast action to sell things for two resources with Well Connected. So, you know, tap for a boost for every four resources you have. And then the, the centerpiece really of his setup was the Red Clock level five. So that's giving you a plus four boost, three moves or two extra actions on the three three turn cycle and the black fan so when you're sitting at 20 resources you've got plus one to all your stats plus one to your health and sanity and an extra action a turn from that and then every three turns you're getting another two actions from the clock and on other turns you're getting a bunch of moves or a big boost for a test this setup was thrilling to see and super powerful and i started counting actions for my playing partner at the table because every turn he had a different number of actions because of how the actions work, but also he had so many. Normally he had five actions, three normal actions, the Bob action and the Black Fan action, and then also every three turns he'd get another two and go up to seven actions. So he's having at least a turn and two-thirds worth of a normal turn, and then often twice as much, you know, twice the number of actions I was having and then one as well. So this was credibly powerful, maybe tending towards overpower. Mm-hmm. At no point did I think any one of those cards was too good. Yeah. The red clock is the closest contender for being too good, but he'd spent 10 XP to buy it, and it was kind of the centerpiece of what he was doing. So... In terms of whether the Red Clock had crowded out anything else, we did talk afterwards. One of the original plans when we designed the decks was that Bob would upgrade into some big rogue weapons to sell to Daniela, mm-hmm. and that that would be one of our routes to getting lots of damage in Daniela would be actually just wielding like a, a Beretta or something like that. And after he'd spent 10 XP on the Red Clock, 6 XP on the Black Fan, 6 XP on two copies of Joey... I think he only had one well-connected, but that's another 3 XP. That's, what, 10, uh, 16, 22. That's 25 XP before you're even... I think he had a backpack two in there as well and various other things. So it all adds up pretty quickly. And actually having the spare XP for a Beretta to sell to someone else was way down the priority list. So in that regard, it crowded out another choice. But... It wasn't like he felt like he wanted to try something wacky and the red clock was just too good. Yeah. I, I think what, what we're sort of getting at here is 
uh, being able to earn it or that feeling of having earned your abilities is like a relief valve for something feeling too good. It's, it mm-hmm. goes from being too good to being really good because you've got to put in the work to assemble it. And I guess the difficulty in, in the design is to make that phase of earning your overpoweredness feel suited to how good you end up being. Do you see what I'm trying so, to say? Yeah, so it's not like it's not like game one, Bob first turn threw down all those cards. Yeah. No, and, this and was, was actually good to go the end the game campaign. setup. Yeah. He had other peaks of being rich and doing things with that. And part of what's fascinating about that Bob deck is the engine of it is really enjoyable. what does he choose to sell or not? there's a scavenging recursion element to it. What does short supply hit at the start of the scenario? Does he need to worry about greed or not as a result? So there's a lot of there's a lot of questions it poses and challenges for the pilot that make it feel very engaged. It's really, in a way, to me, the opposite of the stereotype of too good. Turn one, I slap down my hammer. That's enemies handled for the rest of the game. Mm-hmm. And that and you know, Cyclopean Hammer, I think, is the interesting inverse of this and i i understand and i recognize and can sympathize with people who wonder if it's too good a card because it can be as simple as um, the first 10 xp that i need in the campaign i buy two copies of this and then that's me done for enemy management for the rest of the campaign you know that that's it's not that hard to earn of course you need to find it and play it but one of the advantages that I would say most fighting guardians have is that normally they can dedicate either their entire mulligan to finding their best weapon or also their early turn to drawing cards to find it. Certainly, I've only rarely seen people struggle in that regard in terms of being set up enough. Although, Peter, you'll love this as well. How many times do you think I had Mechanics Wrench, not even in play, (laughs) just in my hand, across an entire Edge of the Earth campaign. You've, you've told me this already, but I, I know you said you managed to play it zero times. Yeah. I don't know whether you drew Since it. I spoke to you, I've played two more scenarios. Yeah. Did you manage to play the, it? <laughs> no, the score is still on zero. <laughs> and I think it was in the penultimate turn of the final scenario. <laughs> I drew it. Amazing. I was like, Yes! I mean, luckily, I'm not one of those players who sits going like, oh, I need this one piece and then I'll really be singing. I had other weapons in my deck, so I didn't I didn't mind too much. I had the fire extinguisher level three, actually, which is great fun. But all the same, I didn't have it. I didn't see it. So, yeah, I was, I was thinking of that because I was thinking about, you know, it's possible that both copies of the of the 10 XP that you spent on Cyclopean Hammer are sitting at the bottom of your deck and you don't see them. But that's a... I suppose it's leaving to chance. It's leaving chance as the counter for whether or not the card is overpowered. Yeah. Which is a an odd way of looking at it. Another example from recent play is that the Norman player used Deny Existence level 5 on losing actions to gain actions. And so I was sitting at a table with Bob on 7 actions and Norman had been forced to lose actions so ended up gaining 2. So he had five actions. Again, that I don't hear anyone complain that Deny Existence 5 is too good. 
because it's so reactive and based on what the encounter deck is dishing out to you. He was lucky and he top decked a card that made him lose actions and he had Deny Existence 5 in hand. So, you know, for 5 XP, he got the thing to land once in a campaign. Otherwise, he was using it for damage and horror. So, yeah, I suppose that's an element as well, again, that luck controls whether or not that card is too strong and can't create, particularly because it's responding to enemy attacks or encounter cards. Yeah. You can't control the conditions with which yeah you make the card good or not but i guess the yeah and and that's something but that's not a defense for a card that's very generally useful this is mm. the flip side of the argument mm. or, mm-hmm. or, or my argument about you can't um make up a situation in which a bad card is okay and then say it's okay um because mm. another card would be good in that position <laughs> yes if you've yeah, got yeah, yeah. kind of inverted commas card that's too good the fact that you have to draw it and have the situation for it to be useful that would apply to any card mm-hmm. uh, so i yeah. guess that that's an argument for the for the breadth of usefulness of a card i think this is one of the problems we saw with the, the early uh the early game bogeyman of uh, uh the key of yes mm. which was always criticized as being very generally useful mm. there was very few investigators who couldn't use it well and i guess this ties into the 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 feeling of trivialising the game for other players as well. Yes. Because yeah. at that point you're able to do you're able to intrude into their area area of the colour pie. Mm. You're taking away that that feeling of being able to do something well from the other people in your team. Uh which is a kind of a feeling we've touched on. That that feeling of being of having earned the ability to do something well, it's satisfying. It's it's Mm-hmm. maybe even one of the reasons why people like playing a game where you can upgrade your decks <laughs> yeah yeah i'm even better at that thing that's my specialism yeah until someone comes along with one card they can play which totally trivializes all the effort you've put into being good at it i remember actually when it came out i was midway through a campaign it was dunwich and it was playing as roland banks you might not have heard of him <laughs> i remember it trivializing my own deck as oh, well. really <laughs> Because I got it up to three horror on it, so my stats were six, six, seven, five, just with the the key. And I had, I think it's, it's definitely pre-taboo, so I had machete down. And I had all these boosts in hand that I didn't need. The other cards in my hand weren't worth committing to tests because I was high enough up on most thresholds, you know, maybe one or two. But I remember a weird feeling. I didn't feel it. I didn't experience it necessarily as bad, but it was definitely deflating that all of the decision making when you normally play of, okay, can I commit this card or not? Should I commit it or not? Will I play it or not? These little micro decisions that make the game full of detail and choice and satisfying if you feel like you're playing well and frustrating if you feel like you made a mistake, that was gone. Because I just like move here, investigate to get clue, move to next place. Okay, drawn an enemy, hit it twice, it's dead. Okay, treachery, testing me. I'm I'm already three up. That's fine. You know, like yeah, you almost become a robot at that point. It 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 definitely there was a rush of feeling powerful. Wow, the game can't touch me. And the the weirder deflating feeling was sort of more towards my own deck. Like I I enjoyed feeling safe and satisfied and like look what this powerful 
investigator I've made, there was certainly a feeling of jeopardy. Oh, if I get one more horror, the key of this will, will disappear, <laughs> you know, trying to keep it alive. But beyond that, yeah, it was a strange sort of, yeah, I've said deflating a couple of times, maybe disempowering as well, removing some of the potency of my own deck. Yeah, that's that, that God mode feeling, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it really is in that way. And the rush of being able to do anything is accompanied by feeling like you lose making meaningful decisions. Hi, listener. It's just Frank here. My neighbour is, I think, watching football and singing loudly. So if that comes up on the recording, I'll try and take it out. But if you hear any little Easter eggs, that's a, a little treat for you. It's nice that he's putting on a performance just before I leave this flat. Anyway... Go back to what we were talking about. Yeah, Cyclopean Hammer. Imagine if the movement ability was a must instead of a may, so that when you hit enemies, you had to move them away from you um, if you didn't kill them in one hit. Yeah. I was wondering if that would make using the hammer more meaningful in that it would almost be too powerful in the wrong way, because sometimes what you want to do is just thump an enemy twice and then it's gone but the hammer would actually be pinging things away from you, so it would be creating problems for down the line if that enemy's a hunter. You know, you don't want it to hunt in and hit you necessarily, so either you're then going to lean into soaking more hits or you're going to have to go after it. I just thought it might add more more kind of naughtiness to playing with it because often what i found when I've seen people play it is they hit and they're like, well, I'm going to hit it again so I won't move the enemy away. So you actually avoid that ability. What do you think? Yeah, I, I, I don't necessarily want to get too caught up in discussing uh, Cyclopean Hammer in particular. Mm-hmm. I do think it's interesting that the card already has... It's easy to, to look at the ability of the card in isolation. Mm-hmm. It does use up two hand slots. It's got quite an expensive cost. It's limited in the factions that can take it as well. But yeah, it's... It being a may is only only an upside, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sliding creatures around with it uh, would get, unless you had a, a very robust, uh, some robust movement tech in your deck, yeah. uh, would get pretty old if you're yeah. ping, pinging it between two two locations. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, ping, run after it, ping it back. The stated aim or the unexpressed aim of this episode is not to work out if Cyclopean Hammer is too good or not and deserves that label. And actually, you know, Mythos Busters did a really good exploration of that topic and they also announced the card. So they've had a lot of time thinking about it. So I would recommend checking them out if you're interested in that discussion. Mm-hmm. I didn't mean to shoot you down there, Frank, by the way. No, 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 no. I'm happy for <laughs> you to say that across. because we... Shut up, Frank. <laughs> No, and I, but I think it's worth saying out loud as well that we're not... It's just that our goal when we sat down to record is not to work that out. It's yeah. to think more broadly about the questions around it. We, you've talked about the, the pejorative of the label and obviously there's something in calling a card too good which means that when we when we compare it, when we put it in context of other cards, we might be saying, hang on, it's more powerful than other cards. Not just that but it's so powerful that it makes the the choice to take it not really a choice. Yeah. Because anything else is is choosing to hamper yourself or you're making a choice not on power grounds, but maybe on flavor or theme or things that you might feel you have to justify. We've mentioned 
the loss of tension that might come with playing cards like that, or the way of sort of simplifying the threat of the game. Yeah. And I think you were starting to mention as well how it might feel for other people at the table. Like this is a, a different avenue, but the generalist who can do everything so well can feel a bit like, oh, well, what's my role here? We've mentioned in recent episodes our Lily and Jack playthrough and, you know, sometimes me wondering if I was doing much at all. But the the domain of handling enemies was pretty much squarely mine. And you'd chip in a damage or two, wouldn't you, every so often? So in that area, I felt I was super tuned towards killing enemies as Lily. And that felt good and proper. Do you know what I mean? It felt like I had a role to play, which I think often is the case in two-player groups. You, you have someone who leans more one way and someone who leans the other. And so I guess the other element floating around here is that one faction has had more cards tabooed than any other. I'm pretty sure that's right, <laughs> which is <laughs> seeker right, just need, need making fa- bold claims here. With, I need a fact check. Without, yeah, <laughs> it's just full of, full of bollocks. Yeah, as I said it out loud, I was like, oh, hang on, this rogue have been hit for a few. But yeah, you know, we saw the, the trifecta of higher ed, Rex Murphy, Dr. Milan, Christopher all get hit in that first tabooing and then later on we saw a segment of onyx knowledge is power the necronomicon like there have been powerful seeker oh mr rook how could i forget yeah pathfinder yeah. <laughs> yeah suddenly all the cards coming back to me lots of these seeker cards have been hit by taboo and we mentioned at the start you know is taboo responding to cards being too good or in particular is it responding to that example you gave about crowding out space for other cards yeah so yeah. we saw it with dr milan why would you run academic army when you could just run dr milan and then we saw it with mr rook this level zero card that you could you you know the supposed downside of the card which was forcing you to draw a weakness actually was a a plus because you were controlling when you drew the weakness do it on your terms so yeah within that i suppose there's a question of are seekers too good and is there something about the seeker pool in particular that lends itself towards these really powerful cards that lead to some of the things we associate with calling a card overpowered or too good, namely like a loss of enjoyment for other players or a loss of choice, a loss of tension in the game? What do you think? Well, I think it's evidence, obviously, that the design team is biased towards uh, yellowy-orange cards, right? Yes, yeah. It's, it's and FFG an have been... For years, right? <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, NBN. No, it's it's an interesting one. I, it, we, we did touch on this in the Colour Pie episode, I feel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we did. One of the problems you've got is that it's a faction primarily associated with getting clues mm-hmm. and one of their, their kind of Colour Pie abilities is drawing cards and drawing cards is good because it gets you the things you need. Mm-hmm. And because... I guess there's a kind of a, a, a of an attempt to make all the factions able to do everything. Maybe it's easier if you if your base ability is getting clues, and then you can add in the silver bullets for the other things, rather than the kind of the other way around. The, the, the other factions do. If you have to get your tech to get clues, mm, yeah, you know that you're limited in, in color pie. The idea that guardians, if the way they get the clues is by killing enemies. They need to set up to kill enemies and find enemies before they can get clues. Yeah, yeah. So they're sort of immediately hampered by 
the vagaries of the encounter deck and their own deck, and they don't have the innate draw, broadly speaking, of seekers to to find all the pieces they need. And that could definitely tie into, I guess, a feeling that a good seeker is crowding out what other people can do. Notably, the game hasn't responded to that, or the designers haven't, by just increasing the number of clues per location. You know, going from two I to three I to four I across the board, and there was a possibility that that would be the case. Dunwich has quite high clue thresholds; it has some three I locations, and it's striking, of course, that Rex Murphy was the seeker in that, who in theory gets six clues a turn. Yeah, yeah. While standing on his head. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it seems like one of the responses has been to up the clue-getting potential of other factions rather than make the game more demanding in that domain to try and counter the power of Seekers. So it makes it easier to play as, say, a main-class rogue who's going to be dedicated to clues or a main-class mystic who's going to be dedicated to clues rather than focusing entirely on we need to make it harder for Seekers which I think is a good step in terms of balance. It's it's make it okay for, to play other things rather than tear down the superpowered thing. Yeah. It's a funny one with Seeker, isn't it? It's an un, un, uneasy one because of the combination of movement, draw, and clues. It feels like they have a lot to do, but they can actually seem to do that very quickly. Yeah, 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 yeah definitely. And then just having the silver bullets available to deal with enemies when they do show up is yeah. is really good. Yeah, suddenly play two, I've got a plan, do eight damage, Yeah, <laughs> move on. Yeah. Or some kind of disc recursion or something like that, some other nonsense. Mm-hmm. Oh, even actually, the meanest one I did was playing as Mandy and assembling the pendant and using the pendant to evade a huge enemy. Yeah. So the fighter was like, well, I can kill it. And I was like, well, I've evaded it. And then I need to. Pipe and down. we're going to leave here, you know. And that's. And then you shortcut not... them out so they couldn't even fight if they wanted to. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And then Pathfinder out myself and then said, right, to start my turn. <laughs> and that's, that's a, like a, an explicit example of what I'm able to do interfering, impacting the other players at the table. Yeah. Sort of not just not just saying, look how strong I am, look how I trivialise this enemy. It's also saying to the other player, and you don't need to do anything. You shouldn't do anything. Yeah, yeah <laughs> I don't yeah. want you I to do anything. Yeah. <laughs> Pack up your deck. Get back in the box. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, then when we go back to the assumptions around saying, oh, that's too good. You know, one of the assumptions, everyone wants to feel a level of challenge as they play together. Yeah. And want to be pushing themselves um, there was a moment in that Heart of Madness when I was dealing with the Shoggoths where I said to Bob and Norman, go on without me. It's, I think I'm going to die, but you guys just go because you, you can actually do things towards progressing the scenario. My job is to take these hits. And at least then I felt like I had a use and they were getting on and doing things. I didn't kind of drag the whole scenario down i survived by the way so this is a happy story <laughs> don't worry <laughs> yeah <laughs> but i guess that that at least it felt like everyone had something to do and i understood that my place was as the mechanic was standing between my friends and these enemies and taking those hits i think bob was still like scavenging the dynamite and 
throwing it because it's the dynamite from edge of the earth so it's an asset and then throwing it like over his shoulder at me it's like you're not helping bob but yeah he was slowly killing off some of these um shock arts and then norman like cruised in and used a spell to evade them used blur and then left again so they were sort of circling anyway felt like we all had a part to play in that terrifying moment and it felt like the tension and the stakes were really high and it's no surprise to me that that's the thing i want to share on the cast more than oh there were a load of tests i aced or i felt really strong later on that's the reward rather than the experience i was looking for so yeah so going back to those assumptions about what's too good or not if if one of the assumptions behind it is being challenged by the game will be fun then that you know, that obviously then leads into all of these questions around the goodness or otherwise of cards. Where does that leave us, Peter? If we just take a step back, I think, yeah, there's a few elements for too good. And I think it can it can upset the experience for yourself or other people at the table. But I don't think inherently we can look at a card and view it in isolation necessarily. It's going to be a contextual view of a card. Mm-hmm. comparing it to other cards that could use the same slot or to how your faction performs uh, over and above the other factions or your investigator in particular. So I think a character feeling powerful is fine as long as there's uh, a, a process you have to go through to be in that position and that you as a player have taken meaningful decisions to get to that point. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, I, I don't want to feel like making a very easy decision. I, I, I think if if you if you look at that, what I've just said, there's nothing wrong with feeling powerful as long as I've made decisions that have led me to that point. You can mm. see how something like a no-brainer choice that's very powerful contradicts that because I didn't have to think about putting it in my deck. I'm like, well, obviously this is the best weapon. Why would I pick anything else? Yeah, yeah. It gives me as good a boost as the others. It doesn't have any ammo, so it's limitless. Yeah. single hand slot. yeah cheap to play yeah or another another thing in terms of no meaningful decisions we look at rex he originally had an ability that was without limit just limited by how many actions you had so there was never not a reason to try and succeed by two and that taboo change to make it once around obviously then means you then maybe try and pick and choose a bit more selectively well which test do i want to get two clues from how can i commit to that it immediately adds like a layer of agency and some meaningful decision making. Same same with Dr. Milan. If you only get him once a turn now, you want to pass one investigate, but maybe you don't investigate for three actions, make three resources and get three clues because maybe there are other things you then do. It encourages a bit more diversity in play approach. I jumped in. You were going to add more. No, I think I was just going to expand on my, my original point there. I think, yeah, Broadly, I don't. I think cards being very good is fine as long as there's there's a there's a balance in how easy it is to get them into play and, and doing what they what they're designed to do. Mm-hmm. So I guess the question then is, which side of that that equation does uh, Cyclopean Hammer sit? Mm-hmm. Yeah. In other words, are the Mythos Busters right or not? Yeah, we'll have to ask them, won't we? Unfortunately, <laughs> I've just remembered, of course, as well that some of us have come from competitive games where the power level of a card 
isn't just going to affect your cooperative players around the table with you. It's going to directly impact the experience of your opponent. And in competitive games, obviously, you're not setting out to give your opponent a fun game. But fun is in the equation, isn't it? At least, like, the point of us playing a card game is to have fun. But if there's a point at which you're smashing people's faces into the table, is that fun? It's the negative play experience, isn't it? Yeah. The NPE. We have the freedom in... And we had this before the first taboo list, didn't we? Just don't play a card if you don't like it. Yeah. How small to fix it. Well, exactly, yeah. But do you remember my argument at the time of that? Go on. Well, my view has always been that deck building is a puzzle. Mm. And it's very hard for me to feel like... I'm solving that puzzle if I'm not. It, part of the puzzle is optimization, right? Mm-hmm. What's what's the part that's going to make my deck sing at this point? Mm-hmm. So in that situation, I'm not building a deck for theme reasons, although that's absolutely something I've done, is, is identifying the cards that are overpowered and then using them in my deck in the correct way. Is that not part of the puzzle of deck building? So it feels like if I'm not using the tools available to me as intended by the designers i guess what am i doing and i i guess to carry the analogy further does does each investigator have the perfect puzzle which is the perfect deck for them or are there many different puzzles that would complement each investigator Hmm. because i feel like if i know rewinding all the way back to pre-taboo i knew that higher education was incredibly strong and i played it a load and I reached the point where I wanted to try other things. So I was able I was able to say, I'm not going to play that anymore. And if I showed you a deck, I'd say, this is a deck that I'm not upgrading into higher education or streetwise. And I think you'd still say, but why? It's such a good card. It's like, well, I guess I want to solve a different puzzle. <laughs> I want to solve solve the puzzle without including that. Maybe it just felt too obvious a piece to put in. Yeah. It's fascinating. It will rumble on and on. Hey, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> it's one of the things that's the sustaining enjoyment of the game. And that, I think, leads back to the idea of calling a card too good, it being a negative experience or a pejorative. It's if you're, the, if you're there sitting looking at the upgrades for your deck and one is so much stronger than the others and that doesn't feel enjoyable anymore, mm-hmm. that's... that's where we get the negative idea from right that's part of it you know irrespective of the people at the table with you are saying well you should have run cyclopean hammer why are you doing this weird you know bar ammo thing um not that that's a particularly strange deck but you're left then thinking oh yeah i could have done that cool well are you happy to wrap this up yeah yeah i think we've we've done our usual thing of We've given a good overview of the topic, but left plenty of room for people to to discuss it. Yeah, yeah. We have no answers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and hopefully people will give their their angle for it as well. It's obviously, it the more we talk about it, the more I think it is quite idiosyncratic. It is quite personal, mm-hmm. and it, like I said, it comes back almost to the philosophy of why are you playing? What's the challenge you want to get out of this, or why are you building a deck? What does satisfaction look like? And that's yeah, very personal and hard to sum up in a single episode. 
Anyway, let us know why you think Cyclopean Hammer is not good. <laughs> or too it's, good. It's not, yeah, not bad. <laughs> Quite good. <laughs> cool. So you can get in touch with us for Drawn to the Flame podcast at gmail.com. We're Drawn to the Flame on Facebook, Twitter, Designed by Humans if you want a t-shirt, and Patreon if you want to become a patron of the cast. That would be fantastic. Peter, how can people get in touch with you? I am United Everywhere, that's U-N-I-T-L-E-D. I'm on Twitter and Discord and Reddit and Steam and Instagram is the.unitled. So please say hello. How about you, Frank? I'm on Twitter as FB, that's E-P-H underscore B-E-E. And I'm around the place as Zooey Glass and Zozo. Please say hello as well. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 